Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. Today, we are closing out our worship series on Christian conversations, and we have had many conversations about the way in which we can and should talk to one another. We've talked about how a person and another person can be reconciled through conversation, and then how we allow others to be part of that as we yearn for reconciliation between two that are in a broken relationship. We've talked about how we engage in holy conferencing as Christians gather together in a local church or even in greater conferences like the General Conference of the United Methodist Church. We have talked about how we have conversations to negotiate needs because we don't all have the exact same needs. And as we've talked about these things, we led up to last week talking about healing and reconciliation. And as we have those conversations, those are not only for within the church, but they are for those outside of the church. As we address why some feel that they must remain outside the church. And as we have these conversations, it leads us to what I would say is the most important conversation we will ever have in our lifetime. Now, there are those who will disagree with me. They will say, no, it is more important to tell someone that you love them. It is more important to talk about the church or to make disciples. But that is precisely the conversation that we're talking about today. That this is the conversation that will change how people experience God here and now, in the days ahead, and whether or not they choose to be a part of the kingdom to come. That is a choice that we are empowered to make. We have free will. We can choose to believe in Jesus Christ and accept the gift of eternal life in the kingdom to come or not. And that decision is the biggest decision that we will ever make. All of this world will one day pass away. All of those that we know and love will have the end of this life. And everything that has been a part of our experience, the things that we have need healing and forgiveness for, those things will cease But the decision to enter into the kingdom is an eternal decision. And so it is so important. The other conversations are important, but this takes precedence. And that is because this is a command that comes to us directly from Jesus Christ. When he was preparing to ascend into heaven, the gospel of Matthew recounts for us that he gathered his apostles there and he said to them that you are to go and make disciples of all nations, all people by preaching and teaching them the things that I have taught to you. And so this comes to us directly from him. And it has been passed down the ages. And as Christian to Christian, we have created the next generation by giving them experience and endowing them with the wisdom that we have gained over time, the traditions of the church, the experiences of the body of Christ over time. It is so important for us to realize that The conversations we have about Jesus can really change things, not just for an individual person, but it will affect their families and their friends. It will affect how they work and where they go to school. It will affect their community and their neighbors. It might be the start of making entire groups of people discover the love of God through Jesus Christ. 
And so every time we think of, a, of an incredible Christian, those names that echo through the ages, whether we're talking about Pope Francis or we're talking about Mother Teresa or Desmond Tutu or the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., when we are talking about these people, they are people who had someone else talk to them about Jesus. And those conversations started them on a path, a trajectory that allowed them to fulfill their call to bring the gospel and to bring God's prophetic truth to the world. And while we ourselves might not be on that scale globally, it is quite possible that the conversations that we will have with another person will be those that bring them to a national or global scale to talk about their faith, their relationship, and their experience. Let's get back to the scripture for a minute. As we read the scripture, this is a scripture that I haven't preached on for two years. I last preached on it, not last Lent, but the Lent before, when we talked about Philip being an incredible disciple to look at as he practices radical hospitality by not just engaging with an Ethiopian eunuch, but giving him the gift of the gospel and allowing him to be baptized. It was an incredible experience, and often when we read this passage, we don't focus on some of the nuances of it. So I want us to get really comfortable with this passage. This is after the Gospels have happened and after Jesus has ascended. The apostles are out continuing the work, fulfilling the Great Commission, and suddenly Philip gets a call from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit says, get up and go. And Philip, of course, gets up and goes. And what he discovers when he goes to the road that he's been directed is that there is a very wealthy foreign person there, an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, an Ethiopian was in Jesus' day considered to be from the ends of the earth. <laughs> they thought that was the far reaches of the world and having no idea how big the world is. And so seeing the Ethiopian, he would have had a different skin tone. He would have been wearing different dress. He might have had his, his uh, hair and his features styled differently. It would have been obvious to Philip that this was not one of his people, not one of his Judean, Judaic siblings. And so he looks at him, and he's also a eunuch. Now, eunuchs were forbidden to be part of the people of Israel in the Old Testament, and that's because the emphasis on being fruitful and multiplied is completely eradicated if you have a surgical procedure in those days that prevents you from having children. And so a lot of people carried a prejudice against eunuchs, this was a practice that was common in foreign courts and kingdoms where people who were very close to the king's wives or concubines would have to have this surgery so that they could not bear children and not be a threat to the royal order. And this eunuch has been compensated as they were with power and prestige and wealth. He has authority because he oversees the queen's treasury. He has tremendous weight in his words and his actions. And yet, despite the fact that he's riding in a chariot, which was a very extravagant mode of, of transportation in his day, notice that he's not even driving it. He has a driver as well. Jesus didn't even have a chariot. He was lucky if he got to ride a donkey. This gentleman has an incredible high-speed mode of transportation, and it was very noticeable. His wealth was on display. And let's talk about where he was coming from. 
He was leaving Jerusalem. He had gone there to worship, which means that he was practicing Judaism. Now, it wasn't quite the same because ethnically he was not Jewish. And so because he was a convert, he would have had a slightly different ability to worship. He would have been more on kind of the outreaches of the temple courtyard rather than going fully forward. But he had gone there all the way from the ends of the earth in order to worship. And it tells us a lot about the eunuch. Despite all of his power and his privilege, despite his position so close in proximity to the king and the queen, despite all the wealth and living in the palace, there was a void in him. There was an emptiness, and he was trying to fill that. And I've always said that with every person, there is a God-shaped hole in our being. And only God can fit there. We can try to fill it with anything we want. We can try to fill it with possessions. We can try to fill it with positions of power here in earth. We can try to fill it with relationships. We can even fill it with destructive tendencies. But nothing will fill a God-shaped hole except God. And this eunuch is looking for that. So he has gone to the temple in Jerusalem. There he is worshipped and he's on his way home. And he happens to be reading, as many people do when they're on a long journey. He's reading. Although back in his day, most people didn't have access to something to read personally. You were doing very well if you were Jewish and could go to your local synagogue on the Sabbath. And you were really blessed if they had the five Torah scrolls. If they had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they were doing well. Those that actually had an abundance of wealth might even have the scroll of Isaiah, which is a very long scroll. And all of these were handmade and hand-scribed. So they were precious and expensive. This Ethiopian eunuch has his own private scroll of Isaiah, which numerous synagogues in the, in the northern and southern part of Israel wouldn't have had. But he has one. And he's reading it because he's clearly literate. And as he's reading this, apparently he's, taught him, he's been taught or he's taught himself Hebrew. This is the moment the Holy Spirit nudges Philip. This is why you're here. Go over to him. And Philip does. And I try to picture this chariot going and Philip trying to run to keep up and having this conversation. And Philip hears the words of the prophet Isaiah. And in that moment, this is when the Holy Spirit has picked the right person because Philip was a Jew who converted to Christianity. And so Philip recognizes the words of Isaiah. His past experience and his religious past are all brought to bear in this moment about Jesus Christ because he hears and recognizes. A Gentile convert to Christianity would not have recognized the words of the prophet Isaiah, but Philip does. And there the door opens just a little bit wider for him to enter into this conversation. Do you know about whom you're reading? Do you know, do you understand what you're reading? And this very well-educated and very smart Ethiopian eunuch says, how can I, unless I have a guide? He recognizes that one of the crucial elements to religion and spirituality is the relationship with another who walks with us, yes, and at times we have a guide or a mentor, someone to share with us the wisdom that they have gained and the experiences they have had, encouraging us to gain our own wisdom and to seek out our own experiences. Sometimes we are in that position for another. And so he is asking, inviting Philip to take that role. Be my guide for a little while. And so Philip gets into the chariot and they start to read more of the prophet Isaiah together. And then comes the moment when the eunuch asks the question, is the prophet speaking about himself 
Or is he speaking about someone else? And the door opens just a little wider, and Philip walks right through it. He says, no, he's talking about the Messiah, and I know the Messiah. That is Jesus, our Christ. And there he starts to tell not only the gospel account, but he starts to talk about Jesus. And what he says is paramount. It changes everything. You have an Ethiopian eunuch who has abandoned the religion, the shamanistic religious past of his people. He has taken on Judaism. And in this moment, after hearing about Jesus Christ through Philip, he chooses Jesus for himself. And coming upon water, he says, what is to prevent me from being baptized? I want to declare that Christ is mine and I am his and I want to receive this baptism. And Philip allows him to do that, becomes the conduit through which the conversation finds fruitfulness in the conversion and baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch. And then the Holy Spirit snatches him away. That was their only conversation and it changed everything for the eunuch. And all the times that I have read this story and all the times that I have researched it and used it in citations for papers and everything else, I have never really paid attention to the fact that we don't have what I now yearn to know. Just what was it that Philip said to the eunuch? What did you say that was so powerful and profound? Why don't we have it recorded? We have everything else. Why don't we have what he said? Just imagine what we could do if we had the words of Philip that were so powerful and capable of turning a heart to Jesus. If we had that, all of us could learn it and then we could use it. And so many people would have that same powerful experience of the Ethiopian eunuch. But God, who is vastly smarter than I, chose not to tell us what Philip said. And I got a little angry at that and I said to God, as I normally do, well, don't you think it would have been better if you had given us Philip's words? These are conversations God and I frequently have that always end the same way. I think I know better than you do. And God said, I don't think that you do. And here is why. Because those were Philip's words. They're not your words. And they're not the words of every Christian. What I have been asking for, what Jesus has been asking for, and the Holy Spirit has been trying to cajole out of us is our story, our words, our experience with Jesus Christ. If I had Philip's words, then I would use his words, and I would silence my own voice. I wouldn't be able to use my experience and the way that I experience this world and Jesus in it and in other people to tell the story of Jesus Christ. Because we get so convinced that someone else's effectiveness is the only way that must be the only way we can talk, the only way that we can present Jesus. It worked so well for him. Why wouldn't it work for me? Because I'm not Philip. I'm not a Judean Jew. I am not that guy. I am not a guy. My voice is very different. And there are people that are not going to listen to my voice. But there are some people that are going to listen to my voice precisely because it isn't the voice that they've heard before. And the same is true for every Christian. There are people in this world that don't want to hear it from me. But if they heard it from you, that might give them pause. They might slow the chariot of their pace down just enough to let you hop in and have a conversation. 
Because most of us spend our time very afraid of evangelical conversations. It's, it carries a lot of weight and stigma at this point. If I said to you, this week, every one of us is going to go out and have an evangelical conversation, most of you would moan and groan and rend your clothing and sit around in sackcloth and ashes and told, tell me you called out sick. That's what would happen. And I understand that. Even as clergy, it's not like I want to walk door to door and knock on doors and go, hey, do you know Jesus? That's not how it works. In fact, when I think about that, the people that really taught me about Jesus, that really introduced me to my Lord and Savior, didn't do that to me. They were people that I had a relationship with. My parents, sometimes my grandmother, they were people that I knew in church, people that taught my Sunday school, clergy that invited me to participate in worship. What were they thinking? There were so many times in my life where the relationship led to the conversation. And the conversation wasn't, let me share with you everything that I learned in seminary when I received my master's in divinity. No nine-year-old wants to hear that. I'm not sure that most 59-year-olds want to hear that. Instead, what they did was they said, you know, let me tell you where I saw Jesus last week. Let me tell you where I've experienced God's goodness and God's grace. Wow, you got to experience Jesus there? Can I experience Jesus like that? Absolutely. And sometimes the most mind-boggling and eye-opening conversations was when they told me where they saw Jesus in me. To have someone see Jesus in you and talk about it is truly incredible. Those are the opportunities that we are given, and that's our voice. There's nothing in the entire Bible about seeing the gospel of Jesus Christ in Sarah Wastella. But there is, time after time, the retelling of seeing Christ at work in the apostles, in the people, in the church in Corinth, in the church of Ephesus, seeing God at work in people who have conversations and relationships that open their hearts and their minds to Jesus Christ. And it continues from there. That is what we are being given in these conversations, the opportunity to talk about us. And that's why I love children's ministry, because children are happy to talk about that. They'll talk about that all day, whether we're having children's time and worship and they're gathered up here and they will talk and tell me exactly what they're thinking and they're feeling because their parents are pews away and cannot get to them. And they are liberated by that. And so they will freely talk about what they want to talk about. And the same is true for chapel and the preschool. I'll have, you know, dozens and dozens of kids up here. And some of them are very adept at telling you exactly what they think and feel. And they talk about their experience and how much they are passionate about that. So why does that seem to die when we turn nine and ten? What is it about us that as we get older, we suddenly stop talking with such confidence about how we experience things? When I talk to children, they will tell you exactly what they like. I love the fact that when we come to church, I can dance in the aisle while we're singing songs, and then I can go back and get goldfish and orange juice. That's Jesus to a four-year-old. I mean, you can see their, their excitement, and they'll tell you exactly why they love it. And then when we get older, we, we start to get very self-conscious and start to feel like, even in the church, I don't know that I should talk about that. Why is it so hard for us to share our own experience here? But sometimes the Holy Spirit pulls it out of us, just like with Philip. We had our first in-person communion worship in five months, 
And those of us that were gathered together for that experience got to take communion in a very different way than we ever had before. And afterwards, I wanted to find out how they felt about it, the participants, and get their feedback. And when I emailed them, I invited them to email me back directly and let me know what they thought. And email after email was filled with people saying, I can't exactly tell you what it meant but it, I had missed this so much. I had missed being all together. I had missed being in that sacred place. I had missed receiving that sacrament that gives me something tangible. It's being able to touch it and taste God's grace and not being able to have that and finally being able to have it, it meant more than I can ever say. I can't quite put my finger on it. And th some of these were very, well-educated and adept people who have no problem articulating themselves, but words fail to encapsulate that experience. And I thought about just, that is the truth of the body of Christ. We are trying to convey our experience with Jesus Christ. What did it mean to us to have that time together? I tell people all the time, I can't begin to explain just how powerful it is to be part of a church, a body of Christ, where we do things that I have never fathomed being able to do. I'm a part of a church where on a given Saturday once a year, we will gather together 200 of us and pack 30,000 meals in half a day. You can still go take a nap after. It's incredible that we can accomplish that together and feed for over 30,000 people. It's insane. Jesus didn't even do that in a day, but we did. It's amazing to be a part of a congregation where over our Christmas Eve and Christmas Day offerings, we asked people if they wanted to make an offering above and beyond our, our tithes and our offerings, that we would pull those together and we would use them to help liberate debt for people who had accrued medical debt. And I'm a former bill collector. That was my first job. And so I know firsthand how horrific it is to have medical debt. And then people didn't just give. $20,000 came in at a time when most of the world is trying to buy presents and, and celebrate in secular ways. This church gave $20,000. And we liberated $2.2 million of medical debt in Virginia. And that's a part of the family that I'm with. I get to be a part of Christ doing these things. And I get to do it shoulder to shoulder and next to and in relationship with other people that are magnifying Christ in this way. Those are the stories we tell. I don't confound people using big words like Christology and soteriology when I talk to them about Jesus. Nobody wants to hear that. Instead, they want to know what Christ means to you. Where do you experience Christ? Where do you go? Who are you with when you experience that Savior that every time someone points to a cross, they're saying that name Jesus? What does that mean? What does it mean to you? That's what they want to know. They don't want my answer. They want your answer. And that answer is all you in your voice and in your experience. And how beautiful that is. Just as the Dolans family used all of their voices to create incredible harmony that was powerful and a cappella. That's the body of Christ. Every one of us uses our voice to add to the great chorus of the gospel. And if we don't do that, then we're not as impactful as we could be. And the truth is it takes all of us. 
This hangs in my office right next to my standing desk where I work when I come to the office. And this is my genealogy of my ordination. And it's framed very intentionally in a frame that is made up of mosaic tile that was all broken and now reunited. And it's red for the Holy Spirit. And here it traces all of these bishops that were part of the chain of ordination and the authority that led to my ordination down here at the bottom. But every one of these people was shaped by conversations and relationships where someone shared Jesus Christ with them. And if one of those people hadn't had those conversations and wasn't a part of this chain, then I wouldn't be here. And that is so true. The people that really did shape my, my faith are not ordained bishops. No offense to bishops. I didn't see them when I was five and six. Instead, the people that shaped my faith were people just like you. People that chose to tolerate a rather rambunctious and hyperactive young girl. People that looked at me when I was in high school and said, she's a little off the beaten track, but maybe we can work with this. We'll give her fire and let her light things on the altar. People who said, you know what, you're here and the, the lay liturgist for the day didn't show up, so how would you like to read the scripture? People who started a conversation with me and allowed me to use my voice and gain experience. So when you're wondering, how do I have a conversation about Jesus with someone? It could go something like this. You know, we did this really cool thing last year and we're gonna be doing it again in two weeks. Do you wanna come with me? We'll go get breakfast and then we'll go and we'll pack meals and we'll feed 30,000 people. We've done it for people in Honduras and Haiti. I can't wait to see what we're doing it this year. Do you wanna come? It could be a conversation like this. You know, I'm a part of this group and I know it's gonna sound, you know, very traditional. We actually get together and read the Bible, but I promise you, you can have some good times and some laughs at it. You should come and check it out. I'll sit next to you and you don't have to say a thing and nobody's going to make you feel uncomfortable. You want to come and try it with me? Those kinds of things where you invite people and you walk with them, but you tell them what it means to you, that is real evangelism. What Philip did that worked was he told the Ethiopian eunuch about his Jesus, the Jesus that he knew, the Jesus that forgave him his sins, that redeemed him from his darkness. That's what Philip shared. And while we don't have a transcript of what he said, and while he didn't bother to give us an outline and bequeath it to future generations, we know that he used his voice. And because he did, that eunuch was forever changed. And he never saw him again. One conversation can change that world. And that's what Jesus is asking of us to get the courage to use our voice to share our experience, not mine, not some theologian, not some biblical scholar, yours, your voice, your experience, even the bad ones. Those are the times when God allows you to truly continue the gospel story. And it's a hope in the prayer of Christians all over the world that that's what we start talking about. We have spent so much time over the past five months of quarantine using our voices to talk about a lot of things. How many of them have led to conversion experiences where people truly become disciples of Jesus Christ? How many of our words have really led to people claiming Jesus through the sacrament of baptism? How many of our words have really brought about healing and reconciliation? 
those are the words that we're called to use. That's what brings honor and glory to Jesus Christ. May we take advantage of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit and the gift of using what you think and feel and what you have done and seen to preach Jesus to those who don't yet realize just how incredible our Savior is. But they should because he's theirs as well. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.